sledgehammer up for 2019. Uh, if you've been around for the Sermon on the Mount series, you know what that means. Uh, this has not been uh, the easiest series to walk through, um, but hopefully if you, if you have been around, uh, you've experienced um, some, some transforming work in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, God has uh, hopefully revealed some things to you. Uh, that uh, sledgehammer illusion came from a C.S. Lewis quote, and the other part of that quote is, um, that the gravest danger would be to walk through an entire series like this and come out on the other side without having had any sort of impactful moment whatsoever. And so um, if that's you, you still got two more shots before we move on to the, the next sermon series. Um, this, the Sermon on the Mount, going back to, to week one in terms of trying to frame this thing, I mentioned that, that this is essentially Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the king himself having come to rescue a people for himself, calling us to come under his reign, a radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world, turning to Jesus and his kingdom because we believe that Jesus is truly a better king. Jesus begins, if I could attempt to summarize this entire series in like 60 seconds or, or less, please don't pull up your clock app right now, but um, Jesus begins this this great sermon with a pronouncement of blessings, the Beatitudes, describing the beauty of what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom, a kingdom so upside down in nature that those who buy in are, are certain to some extent to experience persecution in some way, shape, or form simply for living in accordance with their citizenship. The poor in spirit, the lowly and meek, the merciful Seemingly insignificant countercultural people radically impacting the world around them for the glory of God. A kingdom whose king, as we've seen over and over again throughout this series, would come after the hearts of his people, planting his flag of kingship deep within us, bringing to a, us to our knees in this posture of, of poverty of, of spirit, a desperation for God so that we might live uh, in response to his everlasting forgiveness under his reign. Singing, as I've said from the very beginning, with our hearts and our lives, this song of the kingdom. It's a far more beautiful song Jesus shows us than, than that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's a song of kingdom righteousness that works its way from the inside out. A song of both glad submission and deep dependence as children of our heavenly Father who delights, as Jesus told us last week, in giving us the grace that we so desperately need in order that we might live in accordance with our kingdom citizenship for God's glory. This morning, there, there's a turn of sorts. We're gonna, we're gonna actually bring the sermon notes portion of this series to a close as Jesus presents us with the danger of appreciating his message without appropriating his message. Some of the most sobering words in all of scripture, a really light moment for us. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter seven. That's where we'll be this morning Verses 13 through 27, we're gonna sit with those. We'll come back around and we'll book in this thing next week. And then we'll move into a Christmas series. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the um, seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and use it during your time with us. You can have that Bible uh, if you don't own one. I'm gonna pray for us because we got a little bit of ground to cover this morning and, and we'll jump in and, and get going. Our Father in heaven, we need you. We're desperate for you, whether we realize it or not. We're so hopeless without you, without your grace. I pray that 
you would help us to see the beauty of the way of King Jesus this morning. Perhaps some of us for the first time. Perhaps some of us for the thousandth time. That we would walk away marveling at who we are in Christ for those of us who are Christians by the time we leave this place. That we would declare wonder of wonders. That we could be children of God. And that your grace would motivate us to persevere down the narrow path. The path that far fewer have gone down and will gone down when all is said and done. But that you would help us to see at the end of that path the, the wonder of everlasting life in your presence. And that that would encourage us and comfort us this morning. Spirit of God, as we pray every week, would you, would you move? Would you stir? Would you work in our midst? Would you help us to see things that perhaps we've come in blind to, um, to hear things that perhaps we've come in not hearing? Would you awaken the stony parts of our hearts, soften our hearts this morning by your power? In Jesus' name I pray, our Savior and King. Amen. So I mentioned... In week one of this series, right out of the gate, that Jesus speaks with the authority of the divine, the same kind of authority with which he said to the disciples, follow me. And and it's pretty jarring at times, as it should be. The Sermon on the Mount, as as I just mentioned a moment ago, is, is a call to come under the reign of King Jesus, a radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world submitting our lives in in glad allegiance to him. Jesus makes that crystal clear in this morning's passage as he distinguishes between the narrow gate and the wide gate, the narrow path and the broad path, the healthy tree bearing good fruit and the diseased tree bearing bad fruit, the one who will someday hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, and the one who will someday hear Jesus declare, depart from me, I never knew you the one who builds his house on the rock and the one who builds his house on the sand. If I could oversimplify right out of the gate what Jesus is saying here, in light of his teaching for the better part of three chapters of the Bible, Jesus here is calling us to make a decision. Some of us maybe for the very first time, some of us for the thousandth time this morning. He's calling us to make up our minds. He refuses to to let us pontificate about the various things that he's been saying as if we could just sit around and talk about it without responding to it, which is fascinating when you think about it because there are so many people in the world who really like Jesus's sermon on the mount for for the teaching that it offers. Really love what Jesus has to say about this topic. I really appreciate this this one-liner from the mouth of Jesus, this fortune cookie statement. The proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, requires a decision, a commitment. Jesus doesn't solely say, think on me, though that's certainly important. Jesus says, follow me. He makes it clear in this morning's passage that that there are really only two ways, that we're either with him or we're against him. Similar to the language of the psalmist in the very first psalm, uh, who distinguishes between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the one like a tree planted by streams of water and and the, the other like chaff that the wind blows away. There's not a third way. According to Jesus, we're either kingdom of heaven people or, or we're not. We're either on the path that leads to life or the path that leads to destruction. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I'm not sure how those verses are translated in your Bible, um, but the word translated easy in many of our Bibles, uh, that's not the best translation. The, The word is better translated broad or spacious in the original Greek. Same thing with the word hard. Uh, in many of our Bibles. That word is better translated compressed or pressed in in the original Greek so that the the truer to the original uh, language translation would be something like the gate is wide and the path is broad that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Meanwhile, the gate is narrow and the path is compressed that leads to life and those who find it are few. So that it's less about the ease or difficulty of the path, though that certainly plays into the word picture, but it's more about the broadness and the, versus the narrowness of these two gates and paths. We, we know that the gate that opens up to the Christian path is narrow on the basis of what Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel accounts, right? John 14, six, very famous verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says there aren't multiple paths up to the top of the mountain to connect with God. It's not how, it's not how it works. Peter says elsewhere in Acts chapter four, verses 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the only way to obtain kingdom citizenship is through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. The narrow gate is not a gate of pluralism. There's a gate so narrow, think about this, looking forward in Matthew's gospel account to some of the parables of Jesus, there's a gate so narrow that it's so easy to miss it. It's like treasure hidden in a field or a pearl of great value hidden under the water. The gate's so narrow that it forces us to leave some things behind. Things that just don't fit through the kingdom of heaven gate. Things like the kingdom of this world, which Jesus has contrasted with his good kingdom from the very start. Things like the crowd majority, which Jesus says will inevitably choose the broad path. Things like selfishness, ego, and pride that just don't fit through the turnstile. So that Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that Jesus would say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the narrow way. Going back to the Beatitudes, the beginning of chapter five, it's the path of the desperate, the spiritually bankrupt. It's the path of those who grieve sin and its ravaging effects on this fallen world. It's the path of the gentle and lowly in heart the path of those who hunger to be conformed to God's will. It's the path of those who long for purity of heart. It's the path of the peacemakers, those who enter into conflict in order to see the hope of reconciliation. It's the path of those persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a lonelier path in that fewer travel it, Jesus says. It's not not the path applauded by the vast majority. It won't win you very many popularity contests, which brings us again back around to something that Jesus has said prior in the Sermon on the Mount, namely how significant the love and approval of our Father in heaven truly is, as well as how much of a blessing the forever family that God has given us truly is. 
I don't know about you, but, but I find this contrasting picture to be so fascinating. These two diverging paths. Um, a, a few times in my life, I've been snow skiing up in Snowshoe, West Virginia, and and, and the last part of the drive, it's literally the last two or three miles. You, you work your way up this mountain. Some of you may have been there. And, and as you're kind of going around the twists and turns, it's a very narrow road. So that if you're sitting in the passenger seat of the car and you look out the window, there are times when you don't even see the road on the side of the car. You only see your imminent death as you look down into the valley below. That's what came to mind for me as I thought about these verses. Hey, which path would you feel most safe on? The broad path that's seemingly without bounds, making it seemingly easier to stay on the road, or the narrow one that, that hems you in? Which would you feel most safe on? The, the path on which you look around and see tons of other people moving in the same direction, marching in the same direction, or the lonelier one on which far fewer people are journeying, and not only that, but the path on which people are standing on either side, religious and irreligious, and throwing rocks at you as you try to keep marching forward. Jesus' kingdom is an incredibly upside-down kingdom, isn't it? The wisdom of this world would say, enter by the broad gate, don't be foolish. That path is plenty populated and plenty wide. Jesus, wisdom personified, says, enter by the narrow gate. It's the narrow path on the other side of that narrow gate that leads to life, Jesus says. It's the broad path on the other side of that broad gate that leads to destruction. Jesus says the narrow way is the better way, the way to true freedom, the way to indestructible joy. Going back to the very first week of this sermon series, the question is, do we trust Jesus? He goes on to say in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. When, when Jesus talks about false prophets, He's talking about those who claim to speak for God, yet who mislead others by altering God's word, whether it be by blatantly contradicting it or, or twisting it. Which if you think about these verses in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, sounds a little like the scribes and Pharisees, doesn't it? Who had established this code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures and had managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules and it actually led other people down that dangerous path. A sheep's clothing exterior, the outside of the cup clean, a ravenous wolf interior, the inside of the cup, Jesus says, full of greed and indulgence. Paul talks about this when he's speaking with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. You may remember that from the Acts series that we did if you were around for that uh, last year, where Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves even will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That apparently, according to both Jesus and Paul, there are those who 
mingle with the sheep of Jesus's flock whose words sound very different from Jesus's words. Maybe sounding something more like the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Externally focused, insulated, failing to get to the heart, dripping with anything but grace, compelling anything but a kingdom song. But notice that it's not simply words that give away a wolf in sheep's clothing, but also actions as it pertains to the fruit on the tree. So that there is no poverty of spirit, but rather a spirit of arrogance and pride. There is no mourning of one's own sins, but rather always noticing the sins of others. There is no meekness, but rather a harshness and brashness. There is no mercy and peacemaking, but rather a merciless nature toward others. There is no abandonment of religious hypocrisy and self-righteous glory thieving. There is no posture of a submitted child dependent upon and trusting his or her father in heaven. Bad fruit, Jesus says, birthed out of a bad heart. That's what he's been saying all along. All the while, not just living that way, but leading others down that broad path that leads to destruction. What Jesus is saying here is what's not quickly identifiable in a person's doctrine will eventually be made visible in a person's life. So that, and if you think about this, it's kind of a humorous word picture. You just picture someone trying to staple grapes and figs to a dead tree. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Eventually, grapes and, and figs stapled to thorn bushes and thistles will eventually show their rot as they fail to receive their nutrients from a healthy root system. Similarly, sheep's clothing is like a really bad fake mustache, as it sits on for a while, it just start, it, it hangs, it droops on one side. It eventually shifts and moves in a way that shows that it's not detached or it's not attached to the skin. D.A. Carson says in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says, the fruit the Lord Jesus looks for is a life in growing conformity to the norms of the kingdom, righteousness, transparent humility, purity, Trusting and persistent prayerfulness, obedience to Jesus' words, truthfulness, love, generosity, rejection of all that is hypocritical. He says it may take time for the test to prove very helpful, but where doctrinal aberration cannot be detected immediately and unequivocally, the quote-unquote fruit test will eventually prove itself to be a safeguard. In other words, and I was thinking about this, I, I wondered whether I should say this, and I think I should. Out of love for the sheep, I feel compelled to say this. Um, we live in the Bible Belt, and so it's very possible that what Jesus would be saying would apply to us. So that, if there be any wolves among us, I, I want you to hear this, I trust that Jesus will eventually expose you for the sheep eater that you are, and you won't get away with it. And I say that out of love for the sheep. And if you are a sheep, if I could put it as simply and succinctly as possible, if it doesn't look, sound, or smell like the Sermon on the Mount, run. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Right? Jesus has given us three solid chapters on the heartbeat and essence of his good kingdom. When you read uh, Jesus talking about himself as the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice, it's really easy for us to think in terms of the subjectiveness of hearing Jesus' voice uh, through the indwelling spirit. 
But there is also a sense in which we hear Jesus's voice in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have a litmus test to, to determine, is what I'm hearing, is that the voice of the good shepherd? Does that sound like the good shepherd? Does that sound like the narrow way? Does that sound like the healthy tree? Jesus continues in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That word knew, I never knew you comes from the same Greek word that means knowledge through personal experience or intimate knowledge. Jesus is, has been talking for the better part of three chapters now about, about this kingdom righteousness that works its way from the inside out, this heart transformation by God's grace, compelling glad submission to the Father's will. The inside of the cup informing the outside of the cup would be another way to say it. What Jesus is saying here, incredibly sobering, Hey, he's saying that it's possible to profess him as Lord, even perform mighty works of power in his name while failing to truly know intimately and be known intimately by him. And, and notice, and this is significant, we're not talking about a heretical confession, but rather an orthodox confession in declaring Jesus as Lord. We're not talking about an apathetic confession, but rather an enthusiastic confession in declaring, Lord, Lord. We're, we're not talking about an embarrassed, privatized confession, but rather a public confession evidenced in mighty works done in Jesus' name. According to James 2.19, even the demons shudder as they believe. Even Judas had the power to cast out demons. Like Jesus is talking, think about this for a second, about people who believe themselves to be in. A clear expectation of welcomed entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Again, don't take it out of context. Sounds a lot like the scribes and Pharisees, doesn't it? And Jesus doesn't say that this will be the case with a handful. He says, many, many will say to me, in the words of one commentator, the human race has an incredible capacity for self-delusion and nowhere is that more perfectly demonstrated than in the lives of thousands of evangelicals who are not born again. D.A. Carson, again, to quote him, says, it is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace, he says, cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, he says, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. Not everyone whose parents are Christians who grew up in the church will enter the kingdom. 
Not everyone who's familiar with the word fellowship or the phrase doing life together will enter the kingdom. Not everyone who's read a systematic theology book and can sling around words like pneumatology and eschatology will enter the kingdom. Like The sobering reality is that there will be people in heaven who will surprise us by their presence and there will be people who are not in heaven who will surprise us by their absence. John Newton once said, mind-blowing, he says, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. That's poverty of spirit from the very beginning of this series. It's, it's this posture of humility that says, wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian. I, I should be in hell right now. As Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel accounts, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. If you're a Christian, rejoice that you're intimately known by Jesus, the good shepherd. Kind of intimate knowing relationship that Jesus says will evidence itself in fruitful obedience to the Father's will. Perfect? By no means. We're progressive works of sanctification, desperate for God's grace. We're needy people. We talked about it last week. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And again, that not being an open check theology that Jesus is talking about, but rather having to do with the Sermon on the Mountain context, desperate for God's grace as we march this march together. 1 John chapter two, verses three through six. And by this we know that we have come to know him. It's the same Greek word, intimate knowing. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, there's that vine branch language from John 15, that intimate relationship with Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, so that as we've been talking about for the entirety of this series, an abiding relationship with Jesus will inevitably lead to a singing of his kingdom song with our hearts and with our lives. A point that Jesus continues to make with a different word picture in verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That going back to some of the earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount, it's one thing not to murder someone. Most of us will pull that off before day's end, right? The outside of the cup clean. But what about the inside of the cup? unrighteous anger rooted in pride. It's one thing not to commit the physical act of adultery, the outside of the cup clean. But what about the inside of the cup? What Jesus refers to as heart adultery. 
It's one thing to live a life, chapter six of Matthew's gospel account, of fasting, prayer, and giving to the needy, the outside of the cup clean. But what about the inside of the cup, the heart that does those very things motivated by the desire for public recognition and self-glory? To use the imagery Jesus presents here at the end of chapter seven, it's one thing to have the siding on the house nicely pressure washed, new shingles on the roof maybe, the outside of the cup clean. But what about the inside of the cup, the foundation underneath the home? Jesus, notice that Jesus says that both kinds of builders have been given the blueprint for how to build a house that won't be destroyed in the end. The blueprint being Jesus' words, the Sermon on the Mount. Notice that both builders have heard Jesus' words. Both builders have sat under Jesus' teaching. The difference between the two is that one hears Jesus' words but doesn't do them, while the other hears them and does them. Again, Jesus refuses to, to let us pontificate about the things that he's been saying without responding that the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom requires a decision, a commitment. Jesus doesn't solely say, think on me. Jesus says, follow me. He's the, he's the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He's the sure foundation that we can and should build our lives on. There, there are those, and you see this a lot in our context, there are those who come face to face with the great storms of life to use Jesus' imagery in these verses and those very storms reveal the shifting sand on which their life has been built. So that if a wave big enough comes along, there's a pronouncement of I can't worship and follow this God. And then there are others who come face to face with the great storms of life and those very storms reveal the unshifting rock on which their life has been built and they say God glorifying things like even in this too, Jesus is enough. That's what storms do, present tense. That's the now aspect of the storm imagery. They test the foundation on which our lives are built. But there's also this not yet aspect of the storm imagery, the future storm that will inevitably and eternally separate the one from the other. The storm of God's judgment, the destruction at the end of the broad path that Jesus has talked about, the diseased tree cut down and thrown into the fire. So that, and I'm not sure a lot of us think this way. I know certainly I don't tend to lean in this direction by default. Think about this. One of God's greatest kindnesses to us, it just might be a present tense storm that reveals our foundation of sand before the greater future storm comes and it's too late. So that maybe some of us need to praise God for the storm that, that turns us in faith and repentance to Jesus. On the, on the basis of what Jesus is saying here, I think it's safe to say, if our ultimate object of trust cannot weather the great storms of life, our ultimate object of trust is not Jesus Christ because he can hold up in any storm. These are not words for the faint of heart, right? Crowd might be a little smaller next Sunday. Like Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a threat of judgment. There are only two ways, he said. There's one that leads to life and the other that leads to destruction. And so I would ask this morning, do you know this Jesus? This, this passage is incredibly evangelistic. Do you love him? Is the fruit of the Spirit real and evident in your life? It's not sufficient to sit under preaching about the gate. 
You must enter through it. And so I'd invite you this morning to do that, to take a step toward Jesus by faith and to trust him as a sufficient savior from your sins and as a worthy king. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, for a long while, having entered through that gate, we persevere down the narrow path that leads to that celestial city by God's grace. Again, coming back to last week's passage, we keep asking persistently and and seeking and knocking, desperate for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Going back to the very first week of the series again, the Sermon on the Mount not only exposes our desperate need for a sin-bearing Savior, directing our, our gaze to Mount Calvary, Jesus died so that we might now live the Sermon on the Mount too, by his grace and by the power of his indwelling spirit. He used that biblical imagery, one step in front of the other, leaving our nets daily as he declares, follow me. And so if you have been a Christian for a while, I guess the question this morning would be, in what way is he calling you to leave your nets today? Martin Luther once said that the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. And so what does that look like this morning? to cast your nets and to follow Jesus down that narrow path, knowing that at its end is everlasting life and joy. In, in a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this worthy Savior and King in a number of ways through our collective song as we're gathered in this place, through the receiving of communion, the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. It's an opportunity to come and, and to celebrate that, that there's a gate at all and that we've entered through it by God's grace. It's an opportunity to say wonder of wonders because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that I could be a Christian and to just shout that with our hearts as we receive the bread and the cup. There will be people in the back of the auditorium with our prayer team to pray with and for you if you'd like someone to to pray alongside of you. I was reminded by one of our partners this week about this great little book called The Valley of Vision, which is a book of glorious prayers, and there's one entitled Christ's Likeness. And and I'm just gonna pray this and, and then step off the stage and we'll continue to worship. Will you bow your heads with me? Father of Jesus, dawn returns, but without thy light within, no outward light can profit. Give us the saving lamp of thy spirit that we may see thee, the God of our salvation, the delight of our souls, rejoicing over us in love. We commend our hearts to thy watchful care, for we know its treachery and power. Guard its every portal from the wily enemy, Give us quick discernment of his deadly arts. Help us to recognize his bold disguise as an angel of light and bid him be gone. May our words and works allure others to the highest walks of faith and love. May loiterers be quickened to greater diligence by our example. May worldlings be one to delight in acquaintance with thee. May the timid and irresolute be warned of coming doom by our zeal for Jesus. Cause us to be a mirror of thy grace to show others the joy of thy service. May our lips be well-tuned cymbals sounding thy praise. Let a halo of heavenly mindedness sparkle around us and a lamp of kindness sunbeam our path. Teach us the happy art of attending to things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal.
Send us forth to have compassion on the ignorant and miserable. Help us to walk as Jesus walked, our only savior and perfect model. His mind, our inward guest. His meekness, our covering garb. Let our happy place be amongst the poor in spirit, our delight, the gentle ranks of the meek. Let us always esteem others better than ourselves and find in true humility and heirdom to two worlds. In Jesus' name I pray.